0: Welcome to the Digital Edge with Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway. Your hosts, both legal technologists, authors, and lecturers invite industry professionals to discuss a new topic related to lawyers and technology. You're listening to Legal Talk
1: Network. Welcome to the 128th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, an information technology, cybersecurity, and digital forensics firm in Fairfax, Virginia.
2: And I'm Jim Calloway, director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. Today, our topic is the cloudy ethics of cloud computing.
1: And before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. Try it for free at clio.com. That's C L I O.com. We'd like to thank Answer One, a leading virtual receptionist and answering services provider for lawyers. You can find out more by giving them a call at 800-ANSWER-THE-NUMBER-ONE or online at answerthenumberone.com.
2: Scorpion sets the standard for law firm online marketing with proven campaign strategies to get attorneys better cases from the Internet partner with Scorpion to get an award-winning website and ROI positive marketing programs today. Visit scorpionlegal.com/podcast. Thanks to ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted, pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com. To learn more. We are pleased to have as our guest Lucian Para, who is a partner in Adams and Reese LLP. A graduate of Princeton University and Vanderbilt University School of Law, he was a member of the ABA Ethics 2000 Commission, which rewrote the ABA Model Rules of Professional Conduct. He has chaired the editorial board of ABA BNA Lawyer's Manual on Professional Conduct, and served as president of the Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers. He is a past treasurer of the ABA and immediate past president of the Tennessee Bar Association. Thanks for
3: joining us today, Lucian. Well, thanks for having me on, Jim and Sharon. I've been fans of y'alls for a long time.
1: Well, we've been fans of years, too, so (laughs) it's great. We're all in the clubhouse together now. But before we get to our topic, Lucian, I'm kind of curious. You're a lawyer of a certain age like me. Uh, You were around before PCs, which makes us practically fossilized creatures. Indeed. (laughs) How did you learn to use a computer, and what was your first computer?
3: Oh, my God. Uh, That was a long time ago. First computer probably at this high school I went to in... Memphis where for two years running we had big fundraisers and raised money and got I if I'm not mistaken a digital electronics company PDP 11 which was the size of a tall filing cabinet which would basically run you know tractor feed green bar paper and do fun stuff like that and I spent many an hour in a little closet that had that but the first PC was a Toshiba T1200 laptop which weighed about probably about 14 pounds and this will tell you the age of the technology this was in the 80s it was a non backlit, screen on my laptop, non-backlit, which means if the lights went out, you couldn't see anything. How's that for old? And my wife, by the way, everything I know about computers I learned from my wife. She's a CPA, so she knew all about this stuff.
1: (laughs) You got to love a man who gives credit to his wife.
3: There you go. Where it's due, man, where it's due. Lucian, we all
2: know that the ethics rules have attempted to address technology issues with new and modified rules and ethics opinions. How well has that worked, and, and where hasn't it worked?
3: Well, that's a big question. You know, there was a time, I'm old enough also to remember how the ethics rules have coped with technology in this sense. So, for example, I remember back in, back in the 90s, well, I feel like I need to tell somebody to get off my lawn, But in any event, back in the 90s, when email was young, we struggled with whether we could use email. And it went from the first internet email I remember my firm using, which was not a terribly early adopter, but an early adopter, was about 94 or 95, that was internet email. It wasn't until 1999 that we got settled in ethics opinions whether we could use what was then called unencrypted internet email for client work. And that was, that, then that was considered settled, so that was a long time. More recently, I think ethics opinions and rules have been better about it, but it's a struggle. I mean, lawyers are late adopters, and the ethics people traditionally have been even later adopters, so uh, it's been a struggle. But I think more recently, things have caught up. I mean, for example, the most recent example, you know, there's an opinion out there from Nebraska on whether lawyers can use – can take Bitcoin as fees, and, you know, most lawyers barely know what Bitcoin is these days. So, and it's actually a pretty good opinion, seriously. So I think we're getting better, but some days it's still a bit of a struggle for the ethics people to to deal with technology.
1: I think you're right about that. And that Nebraska opinion, which was certainly the first and was certainly pretty darn good, one thing it did not address was the fees that are charged. You know, what happens to fees that are charged for cryptocurrency? So there's still some room to be working on that stuff ethically. But I, I know, Lucian, whenever my partner John and I talk to lawyers about ethical competence and tell them that the ethics rules compel them to be technologically competent, they all go a little green. So how competent do lawyers have to really be in using technology, and how do they get themselves to that point of competence?
3: You're just going for big questions today. Well, I really think the first question there, how competent do lawyers have to be, I think that is maybe the most difficult question. And it's taken me a while to find a way to articulate it. And you know, we've now embedded in the ethics rules in more than 30 jurisdictions a duty to understand and be aware of and capable of using technology to the extent we need to use it to practice law. So that's now an ethical requirement. And, but what does that mean? Well, my sense is it's almost like issue spotting. The best example I was talking to somebody about this the other day, the best example I can think of is a specialty area. Think of a specialty area that, that is on the edges of your practice, but you have to know about it. So you're a deal lawyer and you really have to be able to spot the outlines of a securities problem or a tax problem if you're not a tax uh, drenched sort of deal lawyer you gotta know you gotta know if there's a securities problem in the deal you're about to do you don't have to be able to solve it but you gotta know who can solve it of course and you gotta be able to spot it the other way i've tried to explain it to people myself and i think i've heard you one of you guys try this and that is you know you shouldn't be using a technology, whether it's the newest iPhone or it's a new file sharing service, if you don't understand enough about it so that you can, well, this is circular, but be confident using it. you got to know how to use it, and you got to understand the basics of this, its security. So that's where I come out. I come out thinking you've got to understand some parts of its function, because you shouldn't be using it if you can't use it right, and you also have to understand how to do it safely. The sort of second part of that to me is always, and this maybe is how do they get competent. I think you gotta learn some on your own, but I think you have to have, I keep calling them a tech guru. For many people, you guys are their tech gurus, but you gotta have somebody who not only you may follow their columns or whatever, but you gotta have somebody on speed dial. I had a seminar last week, I said, okay, I wanna know who in this room knows the name of and has the phone number on their phone right now, of the person they're gonna call at 1030 tonight when something terrible happens to them technologically. And a handful, I mean, five people in a room of 175, raise their hands, there probably were more people than that, but you gotta have somebody you can ask daily questions and you gotta have somebody who can help you in an emergency. And that's just like you gotta have a tax lawyer down the hall if you're a deal lawyer who comes across tax issues once in a while.
2: Well, Lucian, I'm gonna ask you, My overall most frequent question. I answer this uh, several times a month, down from several times a week. So I hope our answers similar. But how do you advise lawyers
3: on whether they should use the cloud? Is it ethical? Is it safe? Yeah, that. I mean, I I still hear that too. I guess one kind of flippant answer is, you know, how do you not use the cloud? Because in this day and age, I can't. You probably could tell me, but. There was a time when I think the defaults on an iPhone, when you're setting it up fresh out of the box, would essentially drive you to backing up your phone in the iCloud, right? I don't know if that's still Mm -hmm. true, but it is so easy to, even if you don't want to. I mean, for example, our firm has had a a policy of trying to own all our servers for years and years. And, you know, then we realized at a point in time, well, wait a minute, the ordinary good doobie user who's opening up a new iPhone, he's sending all our data to Apple. Anyway, so that's sort of a flippant answer, but, but I think the, the true answer is, I don't think there are many lawyers who are comp- except like the two of you on this call, not me, who are really competent to judge the security and usability of most cloud providers. And so I think you have gotta use as reference points others. So if it's a piece of software that many lawyers use and that is cloud-based, Clio comes to mind, NetDocuments comes to mind, you know, very pervasively used by lawyers. That can give you some element of confidence. But frankly, beyond that, um, I think you've got to have help. I think you have to have that tech guru who, you know, comes by at least once a week in your office or works for your office. The the, the other piece of that, by the way, the thing that freaked me out most recently is I think it was our our tech guy, our firm's tech guy, told us in a tech meeting, maybe that one. Anyway, somebody told me the Office 365. Fresh out of the box, virtually, so to speak, which is you know cloud-based product, gives you all kinds of options on how to set it up that vary the level of security that you can obtain. And that there was a survey done, and I'm not going to get the numbers right, but a survey done that if you simply take the defaults, their own score, where they will score your security, is – you know, I forget the, the numerical score, but it's very low. It's Oh, you were the one that told it. That's right. Yeah,
1: it was me. I, I recognize my voice. Yeah, It was 27 out of a possible 450.
3: Well, you tell me if I got the right lesson from hearing you say that. The lesson I got is if I'm doing that, thank God I'm not, or if one of my partners or somebody else is trying or a lawyer is trying, then they need help. They need somebody to sit over their shoulder and say, okay, of these you toggle all these things this way to get the kind of security you need and get you up to the 300 score or whatever it is but you tell me, but I don't, think you can depend on an ordinary lawyer to figure out how to do that on there. I mean, do you? Not
1: not even an ordinary lawyer, but an ordinary IT person. What they understand is how to to install it and how to configure it so you can use it, but that doesn't mean securing it. So, it works, everything works, but is it secure? No. There's actually a whole other set of things that must be done to secure it, and that's where Microsoft itself has something called securescore.com that you can go to online... Ah. And that's where you can see how Microsoft itself says you have to secure it. Now, you don't necessarily need to get all the way up to 450, especially if you're a small firm, because it might be too much. But you certainly can get a lot higher than 27.
3: (laughs) Well, but to me, the moral of that story is get help generally, and specifically in the tech area, get a tech guru to help you. You just have to do that. I I don't
2: see any other way to do it. I will add to some lawyers who don't consider themselves tech gurus that I still view it something that is actually HIPAA compliant as a certain safe harbor, if it is, not just that they're saying it is. But I think that's
3: one thing to look at. Yeah, I think that's right. And certainly people in the, I mean, one thing we're seeing constantly is in the financial services arena, and I think the healthcare field is similar. They've got a one statute, the financial service people have multiple, but client demands are you know, raging out there and increasing dramatically. And frankly, complying with a client checklist, you sure as hell shouldn't do that blindly, but that's one comfort you can take in being a little more secure. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a
2: quick commercial break. Feel like your marketing efforts aren't getting you the high-value cases your firm deserves? For over 15 years, Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms just like yours attract new cases and grow their practices. As a Google Premier Partner and winner of Google's Platform Innovator Award, Scorpion has the right resources and technology to market your law firm aggressively and generate better cases from the internet. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast.
1: Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter Answer One Virtual Receptionists. They're more than just an answering service. Answer One is available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. Answer One helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 1-800-ANSWER-1 or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is the cloudy ethics of cloud computing. And our guest is Lucian Para, who is a partner in Adams and Reese LLP. Solution. Lawyers are so confused by choosing cloud providers. There are gazillions of them. They all speak an incomprehensible language. Their agreements are incomprehensible, and they all promise the world. So how do they choose a cloud provider and vet the cloud providers?
3: Yeah, that, that's a good question. I can't get away from expert help on this, but let me start a different place. I mean, we're a big firm, and I'm on our tech committee, and you know the process there frankly, is not that different than a solo I think ought to use, which is much as, as interested, intrigued, fascinated as I am by the newest shiny object. I try to resist that impulse and instead think, okay, what am I trying to do here? Am I trying to get a suite of Office, you know, word processing and such products like Office, like Microsoft Office, in which case Office 365 is a really lovely solution for that. Am I trying to get a billing system? You know, similar thing. There are tools out there. Or backup, just plain old backup. Or more precisely, there's backup, but there's also you know document management systems. What's the problem you're looking for a tool or a solution for? And then in that arena, then we drill down to you know what are the options? Like I mentioned a while ago, I mean, you know my firm has this aversion mostly to not the cloud exactly, but to cloud the cloud owned by somebody else. But for a solo, you know cloud options like office three sixty five are really very attractive. And so once you settle on, you know, well, do I want to do I don't even know what the competitors to Office three sixty five. I guess Google's got a kind of office suite and whatever. I mean, I'd come up with the list and probably some lawyers can do that on their own. And that's about the point where I would turn to the tech person and say, Okay, I got these options here that I'm seeing. Tell me what I'm missing and then help me choose. I think it's exceptionally difficult for lawyers to make those decisions on their own. And The other piece, like I mentioned a little while ago, that I'm real – I know how this sounds, but I still think it's important is I think you want to stay with the herd mostly, Uh, certainly on anything really important like office suites or, or document management. You know, to be the first lawyer to adopt a document management system, just shoot me now. I mean, I don't think any lawyer should do that, frankly. I mean, maybe the two of you guys probably could do that safely. But honestly, you want to be where lawyers have tread before. But to me, you can't narrow the selection from – you can't put everything on the table on your own, usually, in my experience. And you can't narrow that selection and say, well, these guys are insecure and these guys are secure without some tech help. I just – I don't again, I don't know lawyers who can do that. And so that's where – I mean, in a firm of any size where you have either a regular consultant, IT consultant you use, or you employ one, what I have found is that the best way it works is – a constant dialogue between the lawyer, the non-expert in charge of tech and the tech person. Because the tech person, as smart as they are, as many years as they've worked in a law firm, they do not understand perfectly what the users need. Uh, On the other hand, you know, the lawyer certainly doesn't understand, you know, what the products are. Uh, Anyway, I've gone on too long, but that's, again, my take
1: on it. I think, Lucian, that you're just explaining how invaluable Jim and I really are.
3: (laughs) That's right. Well, you know, I have worked for my prior firm and this firm. I have been at various occasions, usually the – or often the primary contact with – people, and usually a contact. And one of my criteria, by the way, that's a whole other discussion, is how do you pick one? My number one criteria is, can they speak English? And number two is, can they speak lawyer? Um, And they don't necessarily need to speak lawyer, but they need to speak English. You can train them to speak lawyer. English, lawyer, and geek. It's our three languages, Lucian. It's all good.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned uh, in the discussion of cybersecurity that your firm, about 200 lawyers, has generally been of the view that you want to own all of your servers and host all of your data. Is that because you don't like the cloud?
3: No. By the way, my marketing department, there's a little person sitting next to me telling me, no, tell them it's more like 280 lawyers, but in any event. (laughs) Anyway, but no, I joined the firm in 2006. I've been with two law firms and been with this one since 2006. And the firm had a very healthy kind of IT ecosystem at that point. And at that point, and frankly, I'd be willing to bet you guys will agree with me, you know, I don't think we could rely on third-party providers of security. My old firm had for a number of years net document, even then a pretty good program. And so that was really a cloud system. And we were confident it was reasonably secure. But the general notion that in 2006, you could confidently share your data with somebody else and pay them and you'd be okay, I don't think that was true and we didn't think it was true as a firm and so from that we derived the lesson that we can do the security better than other folks and we got a better chance of doing that if we control the whole ecosystem and so at some point not long after 2006 we rented whatever racks or space or whatever in a data center and gradually consolidated everything there that's out in brentwood tennessee we don't own the data center but we own everything in our space there more recently in the last year or so we've started questioning whether that's necessary I mean candidly there are some products now that we need can have in an environment that isn't sort of where your data lives entirely on your own but that was why we came to that point, and that's why we got to that point.
1: Interesting that you should say that you're not in the cloud because when, when you own your own equipment and you're you're in a data center, you are in fact in a cloud, it's just that you're controlling your own equipment, and that's a hybrid cloud solution, which is also something that we often recommend. So, and, and it's interesting that your firm's view is perhaps changing somewhat, although I'm still a little confused because since so much stuff is now browser-based, it doesn't really matter where anything is because you're getting there through a browser. So maybe you can explain to me why they think there's a problem. I mean, whether (laughs) your equipment is in the data center or not, I don't see what it is you couldn't do that you could do if somebody else owns your equipment.
3: (laughs) I think that's right. My own take on this is I'm gradually coming to the view that we have a wonderful IT staff. I mean, truly, we do have a wonderful staff. But we, you know, we, I think every year now, I'm sure every year now, we have uh, testing of our systems, both internally to make sure you know we've patched everything and all that good stuff, and we have penetration testing. I think it's now, no, I know it's now required once a year by a number of our clients. Um, every time we do those reports, we go over those reports, there are lots and lots of things we've missed, even despite our crack IT staff. And it, it just, it occurs has occurred to a number of us that what if that was done by, I don't know, Amazon Web Services instead of us? Or, you know, w- would that be better or safer? And that's just at the level, of course, at, you know, that's the sort of, I think, that's sort of deeper level than if we got, like, I don't know, summation and paid them to host it for us. I don't know, it's, it's just, I've, it's an open question for me. I certainly haven't resolved it. And the firm still believes that we can do almost everything we want, on our own private cloud. Now, I will say, by the way, one thing that sparked this discussion is some service, and I can't remember who it is right now, where we couldn't, where they did not offer an option to have you host it yourself. And so we had to come to terms with, well, well, do we really need this service or not? And the answer was we really did. And it was one of the first exceptions we'd made to that policy. But I've increasingly come to think that maybe that's not the be-all and end-all of security at all. Lucian, when you're discussing the... uh 200 plus
2: lawyer firm, I am, of course, want to remind our listeners that if you're in a very solo and small firm setting, you're probably better and safer to rely on third parties with expertise than you are on hoping that the local computer guy in your small town can do adequate security for lawyers. So I didn't want to throw that in because there, I think there are different standards.
3: Yeah. And, and can I add something to that? The one thing sometimes these discussions miss is reliability is, I'm not sure the right term, but the notion that I can do for my clients what I need to do for my clients today, and I'm not going to have an I – mean, not system's not going to be down for an hour. No question in my mind that Office 365 configured promptly is better than somebody having all those products set up on local servers or local computer. I mean, there's just no question. And frankly, on a day-to-day basis, that's probably a bigger consideration than security, and certainly for small firms.
2: Well, we hear a lot in CLE and podcasts like these today's about cybersecurity for lawyers, and I guess that's the real question. How dangerous is it really out there? How likely is it that any lawyer is going to have something bad happen to them uh, from using technology such as cloud technology? And and if something happens, is that lawyer likely to get sued or disciplined? Many questions.
3: Yeah, um, that's one of those complete imponderables. But, I mean, <laughs> I see enough bad things happening to lawyers that I don't have any doubt in my mind, none in my mind whatsoever, that the dangers that cybersecurity is aimed at are real. I was in a, um, the session I mentioned where I, I think I stole from you, your piece about Microsoft Office 365, was 175 or so real estate lawyers at a seminar done annually by the title company they write for. And people before me, speaking before me, included a lawyer who was describing, apparently with deep knowledge about what was going on in that space but in the residential real estate closing space it is considered a very lucrative market for thieves and the number he gave and this had all kinds of credibility behind it so I trust it. I don't think it's fake news was that a hundred and seventy thousand dollars an hour is being stolen by thieves using some combination of fishing and hacking and spearfishing and all kinds of social engineering and that's just ridiculous. That is just insane. And particularly since most of these lawyers are not big firms like mine, they're one, two, five, ten lawyer shops. So it, it, there's no question it's real. Um, the question is, what is the best thing you can do to protect yourself? Now, the other question you said about being sued or being disciplined, I think the much more real problem is having a financial loss. But can you be sued? Sure. Are there many of those lawsuits? No. About a year ago, I think, well, we're with a very large carrier and the number – and, of course, we're large, large firms. Uh, all of them are large firms. The number of actual claims they had that were tied to cybersecurity, I can't remember the number, but it was single digits. So probably the chances of being sued are low, but I don't think that's the big problem. Being disciplined after a breach, you know, I think, again, that's the, on the low end of your worries. You know, because the things that you're going to get in trouble for, if that happens, lacks cybersecurity – those are not – I represent a lot of lawyers, and those are not things you get disbarred for typically. Those are things you get censured or maybe suspended for a brief period. But it's not like if you're not stealing the money, then you're not going to get you know, disbarred. So I think those are lesser concerns than the actual financial loss and the disruption of your business. For God's
1: sakes! Absolutely, and and uh, I have yet to see somebody be sued or seriously disciplined for any kind of data breach. But Jim, let's uh, before we move on to our last segment, let's take a quick commercial break.
2: Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the country. Connect your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and the rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit ServeNow.com.
1: Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up with the code TDE10. Of course, you can find Clio at Clio.com. That's C L I O.com. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is the cloudy ethics of cloud computing, and our guest is Lucian Para, who is a partner in Adams and Reese LLP. Lucian, how plugged into lawyers' ethical cybersecurity obligations are bar disciplinary counsel these days? My experience has been that they, they, they're struggling to get educated. Do they know technology well enough to understand the ethical implications of cloud computing, do you think?
3: I think they're learning them. I've certainly seen them climbing the learning curve. There's often one or two lawyers in a particular office who know some of it. I mean, think of them as being like criminal defense lawyers or even divorce lawyers. They're having to learn some of those techniques. If a law firm
2: decides to make a wholesale move to the cloud, do you think it's important for that law firm to have a cybersecurity policy? Or should everybody have a cybersecurity policy today? Is that just a part of risk management in the digital era?
3: It's absolutely a part. I mean, I, well, first of all, define your term cybersecurity. That includes everything about protecting confidential information in any digital format. Gone to an extreme, you see things like, you know, even clean desk policies and such, but it includes you know, passwords and VPNs and, you know, uh, password policies and changes. Yes, everybody's got to have that. I mean, I I don't know how a lawyer can practice law without being exposed to enough technology that they have to have. I mean, one lawyer with an iPad and maybe a laptop and a legal pad and a Lincoln, right? (laughs) They need a cybersecurity policy. Their policy is they use a real password and they change it all the time. And they make sure they're not, you know, doing things dangerously at Starbucks. But, yes, everybody has got to have what we would, in a fancy way, call a cybersecurity policy. It is the days when you could just... Not worry about that. They are gone if they ever existed.
1: They never existed once the digital world came into being, and it's just gotten worse and worse and worse as everybody's gotten more sophisticated with the the things they can do and and the way they can steal or corrupt or delete data. So, Lucian, we are so grateful that you are a guest today. We know how busy you are, and you certainly are one of our most colorful guests. It's always a party (laughs) with you. So (laughs) thanks for coming to our party.
3: (laughs) Thanks for having me.
1: And that does it for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. Remember, you can subscribe to all of the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcasts, please rate us in Apple Podcasts.
2: Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon.
0: Happy
1: trails, cowboy.
0: Thanks for listening to the Digital Edge.